Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. I'm very excited about uh, this particular episode that we are going to do. So this episode is going to be about this guy called Stephen Christ. And uh, this guy, he has a book chapter. Um, it's called uh, Christ on Value. And uh, so who exactly is Stephen Christ? Is he a great value investor? Uh, did he make a killing in the stock or bond market by spotting uh, mispriced securities and taking advantage of them? Uh, no, not really. Uh, he's a better on horse races. Uh, he, uh, th that is his area of specialty, horse racing. He's very skilled at uh, spotting um, good horses to bet on and things like that. So these people who take horse racing seriously, uh, they have reams and reams of uh, data. Uh, they have data about uh, each race, uh, when the race happened, where it happened, what was the weather like on, on the day of the race, what were the ground conditions like, you know, who were all the horses who participated in that race, where those horses came from, uh, who, which horse finished first, which horse finished second, uh, and all this stuff. So, so they have reams and reams of data like this uh, about virtually every single race uh, that, that happened in the country. And uh, you can take all this data and you can sort of analyze it. And you can come to some conclusions about uh, some future race that's going to happen. So if, if you know that some future race is going to have uh, three horses, uh, let's call the horses uh, A, B, and C. Uh, basically, by analyzing all this data, you may be able to come to some conclusion that, uh, say, A has a 75% chance of winning uh, this future race, B has a 15% chance of winning the future race, and C has a 10% chance of winning the future race, some, something like this. And Stephen Christ is this guy uh, who's very skilled at coming up with these kinds of orbs. Um, so uh, this this process, which is basically taking a bunch of data and trying to come up with uh, what what is the probability of each horse winning a future race, that process is called handicapping. Um, and uh, the Stephen Christ is very skilled at handicapping. And not just that, um, he is also skilled at betting on uh, horses. So handicapping is the, the process of assigning odds uh, to each horse in a race. Uh, but betting is basically taking advantage of when your prediction of the odds differs from other people's predictions. And uh, so the Steven guy, he's, uh, uh, he's killed at, at both, both these, uh, these parts of the horse racing game. Uh, and he has written this uh, this wonderful book chapter called Christ on Value. And uh, so, so, okay, uh, this is all about uh, horse racing. So what, what, what exactly can a guy who bets on horses, uh, what can he teach us about investing? Uh, so there is a little story to uh, why we are discussing Christ today. Um, so I was uh, listening to this podcast uh, called Acquired. 
and uh, if you, if you don't listen to uh, acquired I, i highly recommend that you you go and listen to a few episodes it's a great podcast uh, the guys who run the podcast uh, ben and david they are both my friends and they are wonderful guys and um, so i was listening to this podcast and on this podcast uh, the the guest uh, in this particular episode was michael moberson and uh, uh, you guys know that uh, i'm i'm a big fan of uh, michael moberson um, i i i love his work i love all the papers and books he's written and and so on and in this podcast uh, moberson talks about uh, this particular book chapter written by christ and not only does he talk about it he says uh, this book chapter this book chapter is 13 pages long and michael moberson says uh, these 13 pages are the best pages you will ever read about value investing so these 13 pages are about horse racing and michael moberson is telling me that these are the best 13 pages that i will ever read on value investing uh so of course i have to uh, now i am very curious about what what exactly is in these 13 pages so i i get those 13 pages and i read them and uh, straight off the bat i see that uh, these pages have lots of probability in them and uh, i i love probability so immediately i have a, a high opinion of this uh, steven crisp because uh, i also like probability he also seems to use a lot of probability and and so on um but in addition to probability there's also lots and lots of uh, horse racing terminology and uh, i know nothing about horse racing so um i have never uh, bet on a horse i have never gone to the uh, race track or anything like that uh, so i i am totally zero on on horse racing so what i do is uh, i i start uh, going to various uh, horse racing websites and trying to read up on what are the basics and uh, what tr- just trying to understand the jargon you know and so that, that's how i spent my free time uh, this week uh, trying to bone up on the fundamentals of uh, uh, horse racing uh, now of course uh, the caveat is that uh, there are still a million things that i don't know about horse racing so if if some of you are uh, horse racing enthusiasts and um, if you spot me uh, making a mistake during this podcast um, I, you know maybe I, i haven't understood something fully or some, something like that uh, feel free to just uh, you know correct me um, and uh, it will be a great thing if you can <laughs> if you can correct me uh, so so with that caveat uh, once i understood the the basic terms in in horse racing i found that uh, Moberson was actually right i mean there there are a ton of value investing insights in in these 13 pages that this uh, Stephen Crist wrote uh but of course uh, in order to get these insights you have to understand a little bit about horse racing terminology and things like that and many of us investors uh, we we read about stocks and we read about uh, security analysis and uh, investing and things like that but we don't really read books about um, uh horse racing and uh, so um this podcast is to take those insights which are in uh, christ's paper and then uh, sort of unpack them uh, not for a horse racing audience but for an investing audience uh, so there are a few insights so first what i will do is i will uh, list those insights 
which I got from uh, this particular book chapter. Um, and then uh, I, I will um, uh, start taking questions about uh, uh, these insights. So I, I'm just going to list all these insights and then uh, whichever insight uh, you, you guys want to uh, hear more about, uh, I, I can talk a little bit about uh, that particular insight because there are, there are a lot of them and I'd like to cover them in the order in which I get questions. Um, so the first insight is uh, what is investing versus what is gambling versus what is speculation? Um, so Ben Graham, um, Warren Buffett's uh, teacher, uh, when he wrote this uh, book called The Intelligent Investor, he spent an enormous amount of time talking about uh, the distinction between investing uh, versus speculation. Uh, so if you take something like uh, Starbucks's stock, for example, uh, there are two approaches to buying Starbucks's uh, stock. So one guy may, may go out and uh, read Starbucks's 10K and figure out the unit economics of Starbucks and make an intelligent estimate of uh, future cash flows, earnings, dividends, and, and so on. And then he may calculate that uh, at the prevailing market price, uh, Starbucks stock uh, is likely to give him a 15% return um, in, in the future. And so he may say that, okay, 15% is a good rate of return. So let me buy Starbucks's stock uh, because it represents a good value for money. And so he goes and buys Starbucks stock. Now this guy is an investor uh, because uh, he has done some research and he has determined that uh, the price that he's paying is less than the value that he's getting. And so um, this guy, we can classify him as an investor. Uh, now there may be another guy who may just uh, turn on CNBC and uh, on, on CNBC, someone might say that, uh, okay, Starbucks is expected to have a pretty good quarter. Um, uh, they, they, they're going to report uh, good numbers. And so the stock uh, will go up after earnings or something like that. And then just based on that, uh, this guy goes and buys Starbucks stock. Now he, he has no idea what the market cap of Starbucks is. Uh, he has no idea what exactly uh, Starbucks earns every year. No, nothing like that. He he just heard something on CNBC. And then he, he goes and buys the stock, hoping that it will go up. And this guy is a speculator. He's not an investor. So basically, Ben Graham said, the distinction between investing and speculation is doing the work. Taking the time to figure out when the odds are on your side. And then investing only when the odds are uh, squarely on your side that is investing uh, speculation is if you if you don't do any of this um, if, if you bet on something even when the odds are not on your side uh, that is speculation or gambling now a lot of us uh, we uh, we think of horse racing as uh, gambling uh, just as um, how a lot of people think of investing in stocks as gambling uh, but this guy, Stephen Christ, he has a scientific system. Uh, so he knows uh, which horses to bet on. He uh, makes an assessment of uh, the probabilities of each horse uh, winning and so on. He bets only when the odds are uh, strongly in his favor and all these things. So is he an investor or is he a gambler? Uh, I would say he's an investor. And moreover, he's a value investor because he insists on betting only when 
the price that he pays is less than the value that he gets in terms of the probabilities of the horses winning and so on. So uh, that is the first lesson. Um, the first lesson from this uh, uh, book chapter is that investors uh, can spot an edge in a variety of different places. So they may spot edges uh, in horse racing. They may spot, uh, spot an edge in a casino in Las Vegas. Um, they may spot an edge uh, playing poker online, or they may spot an edge uh, doing sports betting. Uh, so all these people who are disciplined about analyzing the situation and betting only when the odds are strongly on their side, all these people are, in a sense, value investors. And value investors in one discipline, like stocks and bonds and so on, uh, in the financial markets, can learn a lot from value investors in other disciplines, like horse racing and sports betting and Las Vegas casinos and, and, and so on. So uh, that, that is the first lesson to take away. Uh, so value investors can sort of help each other out uh, even though they may not be betting on exactly the same kinds of things. The the process uh, under the hood is fairly similar uh, in in a range of different uh, betting scenarios. So that, that is the first insight. Uh, the second insight, I already talked about this, is to master the basics of probability. Uh, so Stephen Christ, so many of the insights that he had uh, that he outlined in, in this particular book chapter, they all have to do with probability. And why is probability important? Why do we have to learn the basics of probability? Well, because uh, no investment is 100% a guarantee, right? Uh, any stock that we invest in, we, uh, we invest in it only with uh, incomplete information. It's not possible to find all, uh, all the information about the company it's not possible to predict the future with 100% accuracy. So anytime we uh, invest, uh, anytime we buy a stock or something like that, we are making a probabilistic bet. And uh, uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy um, uh, of uh, the, the Infinite Loops podcast, uh, he likes to say that we are all deterministic thinkers, but we are living in a probabilistic world. Uh, and if we start to think in probabilities, think in terms of bets and odds and things like that, uh, that itself is a, is a huge edge over uh, purely deterministic thinking. And it's not that difficult to uh, see the basic principles of probability. They were uh, discovered by uh, these mathematicians, Fermat and uh, uh, Pascal, um, centuries ago. So uh, they, they laid down the basic rules of probability uh, many, many centuries ago. And these days, uh, any high school uh, math textbook will cover the basic principles of uh, probabilities. Now, they are a little bit unnatural and uh, it's a little bit counterintuitive. The first time we see anything, we, uh, we, we, we don't uh, grasp it immediately. But if we stick with it, I can tell you uh, from personal experience that probability is a simply delightful subject. And uh, not only is it a, a beautiful subject to learn, it's also very profitable. It will help us in all walks of life, not just investing. So that, that is the uh, second key insight, to cultivate probabilistic thinking. Um, the, the third insight 
uh, is uh, expectations investing. So uh, th those of you who have uh, read uh, Michael Mauboson's papers or books, um, you, you know that he has this wonderful book called uh, Expectations Investing. Uh, now, what exactly is expectations investing? Uh, the, the idea is uh, you don't win in investing uh, by finding the most successful companies. You win by finding the most mispriced companies. Um, so if, if you have a company, say, uh, let's say you expect this company. Uh, this is a wonderful company. Uh, you, you expect this company to grow at, say, 15% uh, per, per year uh, for, for the next 15 years. So let's say this company is earning uh, $1 per share uh, today. And 15% uh, per year uh, will, uh, that, that, that means uh, the, the earnings are going to double uh, roughly every five years. So uh, at the end of, uh, say, uh, in year one, uh, if the earnings are $1 per share, uh, then in year 16, that is 15 years from now, uh, the earnings will be $8.14 a share. Now, does that automatically make this company uh, a buy? Uh, so if, can you go out and buy the stock of this company and expect to do very well? Uh, the answer is no, uh, because yes, this may be a wonderful company and uh, you know, uh, it, may, it may grow its earnings uh, at 15% at for the next 15 years, exactly as you predicted. Uh, but the market may believe that this company is going to grow at 20% for the next 15 years. And if the market believes that this company is going to grow at 20%, then what's going to happen is the market is going to overprice this company. Um, so just to take a simple uh, example, if you use an 8% discount rate on the future cash flows of this company, so let's let's say the company is earning $1 now, it's not going to give you any dividend uh, for the next 15 years because it's going to reinvest uh, all its earnings to grow at that 15% rate. But then starting in year 16, after the growth has ended, this company is going to give you dividends. Uh, all its earnings are going to be given to you as dividends. So in year 16, you will get $8.14 a share. And every year after that, you will get $8.14 a share. Now, if you take the discounted value of all these dividends at, uh, at an 8% discount rate, say, then uh, you can pay about uh, 33 times earnings for this company today and still get that 8% return, uh, which is your discount rate. Uh, now, the market may think this company is going to grow at uh, 20% per year. So the market will actually price this company at uh, 61 times earnings. So um, you can afford to pay 33 times earnings or, or 32 times earnings, whereas the market will price this company at 61 times earnings. And if you go and pay that 61 times earnings for this company, your return will only be 5.7%. It will not be uh, the 8% that you want. So we can see that just because you found a wonderful company, uh, it does not mean that it's going to be a good investment. And similarly, uh, if you find a, a company that's not going to grow very fast, let's say it's, it's going to grow only at 10%, not 15%. But if the market expects it to grow at, uh, say, uh, 0%, then um, you, you can still do well on such companies. 
So that, that is the whole idea of expectations investing. You have to figure out what are the expectations about the company that are embedded in the market price. And then you have to have a differentiated view about these expectations. If you have higher expectations than what the market does, then the stock is a good buy. And if you have uh, bad expectations uh, or worse ex expectations than what the market has, then uh, the stock may not be a good buy, even if you have high expectations for the company. And similarly, uh, in horse races. So uh, you don't bet, uh, when you bet on a horse race, it's not that you have to select the winner. Uh, it is, you. if you believe that uh, the most likely, the, the horse that is most likely to win in a particular race, if it has a 50% chance of winning the race, say, uh, but the other bettors believe that it has an 80% chance of winning the race, then you should not go and bet on that horse because you will not be getting a good price. So uh, exactly the same kind of concept uh, applies in both horse racing and uh, in stock investing. You have to understand the expectations embedded in the market and then invest uh, based on that. So th that is a key insight in, in this particular um, book, book chapter. Um, then the other insight is um, that, that there is this concept of uh, transaction fees. So there are always in any, any kind of uh, investing um, that there are going to be some overheads and uh, it's very, very important to minimize those overheads. So in, in horse racing, uh, this particular uh, overhead is called the takeout, which is basically the, the people who run the horse races uh, they, they will take a, a fraction of uh, all the bets that come in and only the uh, remaining fraction is available to be distributed to the people who bet on the races. Uh, so that is a, is a big chunk. And um, so uh, that, that's something like a transaction fee for participating in uh, this horse race. Uh, so in, in, in the market, in stock investing, what are the various kinds of transaction fees we should be aware of? Well, uh, one obvious uh, uh, fee is, um, you know, whatever, whatever your broker charges you to execute transactions. Although these days, uh, transaction costs have come down so much. And if you use a broker like Robinhood, the transaction cost is uh, $0 for, for most most kinds of transactions. So that, that may not apply here. Uh, but the next thing is if, if you're going to pay an advisor, say 1% 1, 1 of uh, your assets under management every every year or something like that, now, that, that is a fee that you have to take into account. Uh, then if you're going to pay capital gains taxes, uh, that is another uh, kind of fee. And uh, if inflation is going to constantly erode the value, the purchasing power of our dollars, then that, that is also something that we have to take into account. So there are all these um, areas of uh, slippage where uh, the actual realized return that we get may, have, uh, may, may be much lower than uh, the gross return uh, if we don't take these factors into account. Um, so uh, these factors over time, they can add up to a substantial uh, um, slippage. And so we have to be very aware of them. And as far as possible, we should try to minimize them. So that, that is another insight from this um, book chapter. Um, then uh, the, the, the fifth insight is uh, circle of competence. So. Um, of course, uh, if we don't understand every single company 
and uh, just as how we don't understand uh, every single company that's trading in the market um, people who bet on horse races uh, they, they may not be able to handicap the odds of every single race so they, they may not have any view about a particular set of horses running in a race or something like that so if they have no view about uh, which horse is going to win or what the probabilities are of winning and and so on if they have no view uh, they should not go and bet on that because that would be an example of speculation and not investing uh, so uh, you kind of have to stick within your circle of competence so in in investing in stocks the circle of competence is kind of the the companies that we understand well whose economics we can understand and predict with reasonable accuracy uh, going forward uh, in in horse racing uh, the the your circle of competence is basically which which races you can handicap and um, you know uh, predict the odds with uh, with reasonable accuracy and and so on so it's important to stick to uh, your circle of competence and that comes out very strongly from this uh, book chapter uh, then of course a related concept is uh, is margin of safety so um, for example if uh, if you have a horse race and uh, let's say uh, the the odds uh, uh, at the horse race they they seem to favor a particular horse let's say there are three horses running in the race a b and c and let's say the betting is such that uh, 60% of the people believe that uh, horse a is going to win the race say uh, and let's say you believe that 70% that there's a 70% chance uh, of horse a winning the race so uh, the bet is priced as to um 60 uh, the, the horse has a 60% chance of winning but you think the horse has a 70% chance of winning so should you go and bet on that horse well the answer depends on two things uh one is uh, what is the um, uh, what what transaction fees uh, what, uh, will will uh, what transaction fees will be taken out uh, by, by the people who run the horse race so what what is the takeout rate so sometimes you may believe that the horse has 70% chance of winning but the edge that you get this 10% edge that you have uh, that may completely disappear after you take into account the fees of the um, uh, the, the fees associated with just participating in the race so uh, if that happens then you shouldn't bet on the horse and even if that doesn't happen let's say even after uh, the fees you still stand to make uh, say 1% or 2% uh, uh, return now you should ask yourself uh what what is the sensitivity here do you do you really believe that the horse has a 70% chance of winning exactly or is it something like 68% to 72% is there a range around that 70% now uh if that range is small then you may be okay betting on the horse but if that is a wide range um for example you you may not be able to predict that the horse has exactly 70% chance of winning the race Uh, you might say okay it's not 60% as the market expects it to be but i think it's something between 65 and 75% um then that uh, that range may be too wide it may not give you enough of a margin of safety to go and uh, bet on this particular horse because after the takeout fees uh, you you may not make any uh, money out on on this particular horse so you have to worry about the margin of safety as well uh that that is one insight and then um, the the other insight is uh, uh th- there are some exotic bets in horse racing 
So um, horse racing is not as as simple as uh, just betting on which horse will win the race or which horse will uh, come second or or so on. Um, th- there are some uh, exotic bets that you can make uh, that involve multiple horses. So, for example, uh, there's there's something called an exacta uh, bet, and if I if I'm understanding it right, uh, the exacta bet is where uh, you not only have to predict the winner of the race, you also have to predict the runner-up of the race. So you, you, you have to predict which horse will come first and which horse will come second. Uh, then there's something called a trifecta bet where you have to predict which horse will come first, second, and third. And so there are, there are these exotic bets. And what Stephen Chris says is sometimes the exotic bets tend to be more mispriced than ordinary bets. So um, in, in, the, in, in investing in stocks and things like that, uh, the analog to exotic bets might be something like uh, pairs trades or uh, betting on options and, and so on. So um, uh, uh, we may come to the conclusion that a stock may be fairly valued, but if we go and look at its options chain, we may come to the conclusion that certain options are underpriced or overpriced. So we may be able to find uh, opportunities in uh, bets which are not uh, conventional bets, but uh, which are a little bit more complicated. So we, we shouldn't shy away from uh, complicated bets just because they are complicated. Uh, We should try and understand them. And if we have an edge in those situations, it may still make sense to go and uh, bet on these kinds of things, uh, even if they are a little bit more complicated than just buying a stock and holding on to it. Um, Then the final insight is uh, tax deferred compounding. This again uh, 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 is an extension of the point I made about uh, transaction fees and so on. So, uh, well, if, if you can't avoid taxes, uh, the, the best way to uh, sort of deal with taxes is to defer them for as long as possible. So uh, if, if, you, um, if, if you had a stock and uh, if, you, if you kept rotating in and out of stocks and each time, let's say you, you doubled your investment. Um, so so, so uh, you buy a stock for $1 and then at the end of one year, that $1 becomes uh, $2. But then if you have to pay, pay a tax on it, say a, a 20% tax on your $1 of gains, uh, then at the end of one year, you have only $1.80. And if you have to pay a tax every single year, uh, if you just work out the math, it turns out that um, it's much worse if you have to pay a tax every single year than uh, if you can just wait until the end of the period and then pay one tax at the end. So the math just works out that way. Uh, so I have a thread on this. It's called uh, tax deferred compounding. So if you're interested in that, uh, uh, please go and read that thread. Uh, but this is also an insight that comes out very strongly in uh, Stephen Christ's uh, um, book chapter. Uh, the, the importance of being able to uh, defer taxes. And in the in the context of horse racing, it's uh, basically if you, if you can uh, bet on the outcome of uh, three races um, uh, at once instead of betting on each race individually, um, then even if the three race bet has a 20% tax, it may still work out better than if each individual race had a 15% tax because you're paying the tax once instead of three times. Um, so um, that is essentially uh, tax deferred compounding in action. So, so the, the, this type of uh, thing is very important in, in investing. Uh, so the, these are all the various uh, insights uh, from Stephen Christ's uh, 
beautiful book chapter. So if you haven't read the book chapter, I would uh, suggest that you go and read it. Uh, it may require understanding some terminology from horse racing and, and so on. Uh, but once you understand the terminology, uh, it's it's a very, very good read. It, it gives you lots of insights. And uh, uh, so um, please go and read it if you if you haven't already. So um, I've, I've been talking for a while here. Uh, sorry about that. I, I have a tendency to ramble on, uh, especially if a topic interests me a lot. So uh, I'll be happy to uh, sort of take questions now. Uh, so the, the next question comes from, um, uh, well, the first question comes from uh, Rehertz. Uh, hey, I, Hi, I think you're on. Uh, hello. Yeah. Hi, Tenkei. Um, so I have two questions. Um, first uh, is uh, about uh, zero-sum games. So I, uh, as I understand from this chapter, it seems to me that betting on horses is like a zero-sum game. So there are winners and and losers and sum is always zero. Um, regarding investing, um, there are people who believe that investing is a zero-sum game, and then there are those who believe that investing is not a zero-sum game. So I would like to know your uh, your position on that. Uh, and uh, second, absolutely, yeah. And second question is uh, regarding. Um, Shareholder, shareholder value. Um, as, as I understand from last um, meeting, you believe that dividends are only considered as a as a value for shareholders. But my question is about buybacks and in general buybacks versus dividend. How do you see uh, differences and and commonalities and and more particularly, uh, if you follow Berkshire, why did Buffett choose buybacks instead of dividends? Thank you. Uh, right. Uh, so so the, these are both uh, one, wonderful questions. Uh, so the first question has to do with uh, horse racing uh, is typically seen as a zero-sum game. Um, because if uh, one, one horse wins the race, um, then um, uh, obviously no, no other horse can win that that same race, and so um, if if uh, if people bet only on which horse is going to win the race, then whoever uh, wins, uh, well, who, whoever wins the bet, everyone else has to lose the bet in order for these people to win the bet. Uh, so absolutely, uh, in in that sense, ho horse racing is a is a zero sum game, um, but it may actually be even worse than that. It may be a, a negative sum game. Uh, simply because uh, the people who run the horse races, the racetrack, uh, they, they take a cut uh, of uh, all, all the bets, right? So, um, you know, if, if there are two people betting on a horse race, say, uh, one there are only two horses in the race, uh, the first guy bets that uh, the first horse is going to win, the second guy bets that the second horse is going to win, and each bets $100, say. Uh, then... Um, Suppose the first horse wins. The first guy doesn't get to take home $200. He, he may uh, get to take home only $170. Uh, why, why does he uh, not, not get $200? Because the $30 is pocketed by the people who run the race. Uh, so uh, the, 
if, if you look at it from the perspective of the first guy, uh, he has won uh, $70. Uh, but if you look at it from the perspective of the second guy, he has actually lost $100. So if you add up both their uh, gains, it's actually minus 30. So it might be a negative sum game once you account for the uh, cut that the racetrack is going to take. Um, so that is horse racing. But uh, investing, thankfully, uh, does not have to be like that. Um, so if I'm if I'm betting on uh, Pepsi, uh, say to to do well, the, that doesn't uh, immediately imply that uh, uh, I'm betting against Coca-Cola or or something like that. For one investor to make money, it's uh, not uh, necessary that some other investor uh, has to lose money. Uh, so why why is it like this? Because uh, companies are not like horses. So uh, Horses may be uh, wonderful creatures, but uh, they, they don't really add any uh, economic value uh, to, to a race. Uh, so uh, a horse does not produce uh, any earnings or cash flows or, or anything like that. So what is going on in a horse race is basically a redistribution. So a bunch of people bring in a bunch of money and then uh, they when they when they leave, uh, their dollars are just uh, sitting in different pockets than what they were sitting in when when these people walked in. Uh, so so uh, just, it's just some uh, shuffling of money going on in a horse race. Uh, but companies are not like that. They actually produce earnings, cash flows, and they add value. So uh, if a bunch of investors come in uh, and invest a certain amount of money into companies, it's not that the companies just redistribute this money to uh, investors in a different way. Uh, these companies actually use the money to uh, earn a return on that money. Uh, and uh, so they share the benefits of that with all their owners. And uh, as a result, this is not, I, I, I don't believe that investing is a zero sum game. Uh, so, so that is the, the, the first question. Um, the, the second question had to do with uh, dividends versus buybacks. Uh, now, um, if I, I've said before uh, in these uh, meetings that um, if, if you invest in a stock, uh, if you are a buy and hold forever investor, uh, the, the only return you will ever see from a company is through dividends. So if you, uh, if you invest, say, $100,000 into a stock, um, if the company pays out, uh, say, uh, $5,000 uh, in dividends every year, and you're, if you're going to buy and hold this company forever, you're never going to sell the company, then you don't care about uh, the market price of the shares because you're never going to sell those shares. The only thing you care about is how much dividend you're getting out of those shares because that is what uh, drives your returns. Uh, now, uh, of course, the companies can also do buybacks uh, in addition to dividends. And there are some uh, tax advantages to doing buybacks, but they are not exactly the same as dividends. Uh, so so, so if, you, if you take an example, so, so let's say a company earns $1, $1 billion, okay? Um, and this, this company has a choice. It can either uh, distribute the $1 billion to its shareholders as dividends, or it can uh, uh, do, do a buyback. Now, uh, let, let's say this, this company um, ha has uh, 100 shareholders, and uh, let's say each shareholder owns 1% of the company, so together they own 100% of the company. 
now uh, imagine that uh, all these 100 shareholders have been called into a room and uh, there is this uh, 1 1 billion dollars of uh, earnings uh, that are available and then the company goes to each shareholder and buys uh, 1 1% uh, of of their shares and uh, retires them so so each uh, each shareholder uh, if if he had uh, 100 shares uh, now each shareholder has only uh, 99 shares because uh, the company has bought back one of his shares. So in this giant room, um, uh, all the shareholders have sold their shares back to the company, and in return, all the shareholders have got uh, this one billion dollars. Now, what what has happened at the end? At the end, how much does each shareholder own in the company? Well, we started with 100 equal shareholders and we are ending with 100 equal shareholders. Each shareholder still um, uh, has the same 1% of the company, right? Uh, so this is like a dividend almost because, see, uh, each shareholder, when he came into this room, ha- owned 1% of the company. When he leaves the room, he still owns 1% of the company, but he is richer by uh, whatever, one, $1 billion divided by 100, just uh, 10, 10 million. Uh, so... so each shareholder has got a $10 million dividend out of this. But this whole thing has been structured as a buyback and not as a dividend. So a lot of people think that uh, dividends and buybacks are essentially equivalent to each other. But uh, dividends and buybacks are equivalent only if all the shareholders tender shares back to the company uh, in the same proportion in which they own the shares. Now, if some of the shareholders are not interested in tending uh, their shares to the company. If some of the shareholders want to keep their shares and if the other shareholders, uh, you know, uh, they, they tender more of their shares to the company, uh, then uh, you, you have two different kinds of shareholders here. You have continuing shareholders who don't sell and you have uh, selling shareholders who sell back to the company. So now the impact on selling shareholders is different from the impact on continuing shareholders. So um, now the price at which the buybacks are done is very, very important. Uh, Previously, the price at which the buyback was done was not really important because it doesn't matter what price the buybacks are done at, each person is going to enter with 1% of the company, each person leaves with 1% of the company. The price doesn't matter. But now the price matters a whole lot uh, to the continuing shareholders because they are the ones who are paying the price. Uh, so, So in this sense, uh, dividends and buybacks are not equivalent to each other if you have two different kinds of shareholders. Um, now, of course, uh, if, if the company gave out uh, its entire $1 billion to shareholders, uh, they, they would be taxed. Um, uh, if it gave out the $1 billion as a dividend, uh, they, they would be taxed uh, on that dividend, and dividends are usually treated as uh, ordinary income. And um, uh, so uh, up, to, up to a limit, uh, the dividends are not taxed. But after that limit, uh, uh, the dividends are treated as ordinary income and the tax rate on ordinary income is higher. Uh, but if the uh, company structured this in such a way that uh, all the shareholders, they give shares back to the company and in return, they, they get the money. So it's, it's a buyback. Then uh, these shareholders only have to pay capital gains taxes on the on the profits that they got when they uh, sold the shares back to the company, and typically capital gains taxes are uh, the, the tax rate for capital gains is much lower than the tax rate for uh, dividends. And uh, the other thing is uh, with dividend, 
you're taxed on the entire dividend amount that you get. Whereas with capital gains, you're taxed only on the gains. So uh, if, if you received a $10 million dividend, um, uh, you, you are taxed on the entire 10 million as income. But uh, if the company did a buyback and you sold your shares back to the company for 10 million, uh, maybe you bought those shares for 5 million. So you're, you're taxed only on the 5 million of gains, not on the uh, 10 million of uh, realized value. So for these reasons, um, uh, buybacks are uh, considered to be more tax efficient than dividends. And that, that is one big reason why uh, Buffett likes to do buybacks over dividends. Uh, the other reason is probably that he believes the shares are undervalued. So uh, continuing shareholders um, will be benefited uh, by buying shares uh, below, the, below what Buffett considers to be the intrinsic value of those shares. So for both these reasons, uh, Buffett prefers uh, doing buybacks over dividends. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. Uh, so I'll take the next caller. Uh, Who's Jay Blair? Uh, I, I think you're on mute. Hi. 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 Thank you. Sorry about that. Uh, my question is, um, how would you recommend someone? internalize the probabilistic thinking you mentioned earlier? Uh, how, would, how would someone go about mastering the basics in that? Uh, that, that, that is a wonderful question. Um, so uh, this is a question that I get a uh, lot of times. And uh, so there are uh, two, two main ways uh, that I would suggest uh, someone go about learning uh, the fundamentals of probability. Uh, the first is to read non-technical books uh, just to understand uh, the, the basic concepts that are, uh, uh, that are going on without maybe getting into uh, too many calculations and getting bogged down into too many details. So uh, good non-technical books on probability are uh, any, any book that has been written by uh, either Annie Duke or uh, Nassim Talib. Uh, so Nassim Talib has this, uh, this series called uh, Inserto, and um, uh, it, it includes uh, a bunch of books, uh, the, the Black Swan and uh, Fooled by Randomness and um, uh, Anti-Fragile. And, and, uh, so so uh, the, these books by Nassim Talib, they, they give you the basic concepts of probability, but they don't get into too much technical detail. And so it's, it's a good place to get acquainted uh, with the fundamentals. Uh, but of course, uh, just because uh, you've read Talib uh, doesn't mean that you can actually do probabilistic calculations. Uh, so I, I found that a lot of people have read Talib and they think they understand uh, the concepts well. Uh, but if you give them a, a very simple probability problem, uh, they are not able to take those learnings from Talib and apply them uh, to to do these calculations correctly. So being able to do probabilistic calculations is also very important. And of course, that comes not just by reading a book, that comes only from practice. So what I would suggest is uh, take an undergraduate textbook on probability. And uh, it doesn't really matter which textbook you take. Um, you take one, if you don't like it, uh, you, can, you can take another one and, and so on. Uh, the, the exact choice of the textbook is not important, but how you use the textbook is very, very important. 
And the right way to use a probability textbook is just solve all the examples. So uh, any any textbook, it, it's going to have a bunch of examples. It's going to have a bunch of exercise problems and so on, so on. So it's only by solving a large number of puzzles, a large number of examples that you get to understand uh, the, the fundamentals uh, of, of probability and how to do probabilistic calculations. So um, the, the, the exact book that you pick doesn't really matter as long as you solve every single example in the book. And mo most probability books will, will cover the most important concepts, all this uh, base rule and Markov chains and uh, uh, all the uh, conditional probability and when you have to add probabilities, when you have to multiply probabilities, all, all these things will be covered by most books. Um, so so uh, just, just take a book and work out all the examples in it um, th this is uh, this, this falls under the category of advice that is uh, uh, simple uh, to give, but uh, very hard to follow. Uh, so uh, it can take a while to work out the problems. But if, if you do stick with it diligently at the end of the process, uh, you will come out with a with a much better knowledge of probability than most other investors. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, so the next question uh, comes from Vinod. Hi, Trinke. Can you hear uh, me? Hello, Vinod. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, thank you. Thanks for hosting this again. Uh, sure. It's a wonderful topic. Uh, I have two questions. Mm. Um, so basically, uh, there is a uh, view market is efficient, right? Uh, and also, we are in, live in the world of information overload yes. and also and also basically what it means is like the the cigar but style of investing what uh, warren buffett used to follow uh, early in their investment journey it is basically right. reducing the mis mispriced bets in in market is basically uh, very rare or maybe it is very difficult to uh, identify um, right. So in, in, in this setup, like say uh, things like retail investors like us, and how do you think or uh, we can maybe still apply these probability uh, concepts to identify those opportunities? Because except, except the time at our end in terms of the, the waiting for a particular bets to play out, uh, what I feel personally is like we, we believe, I, I believe like we have uh, uh, very less edge or maybe no edge at all in terms of uh, identifying such, such opportunities maybe against the, the whatever market is, is pricing that is also being emphasized in uh, psychology of money by Morgan as well um, right. in terms of how hard it is to find certain bits and how even if you find some, some opportunity um, uh, whether, whether we don't know really whether it's going to play out the way we want it right? and my second question is on the uh, more of a continuation from the previous uh, call, right? Uh, how do we internalize this concept? I just want to take slightly a different view. How do you use these principles in your investment decisions? Uh, predominantly, if I summarize uh, today's talk, it's more of uh, shortlisting the securities for investments and also the capital allocation. We identify certain uh, uh, bits. How do we allocate or how do we use these properties uh, concept to allocate capital? And the last one is basically how do we manage the risk? And if you can maybe highlight some of the 
the the probabilities concepts which can um, highlight or maybe uh, use we can potentially use in these three areas that will be really great thank you uh, absolutely so the, these are all uh, w wonderful questions and uh, yes uh, if you um, think or if you believe that the markets are largely efficient uh, then pretty much the only thing that you can do uh, is to buy an index fund and to hope to get uh, whatever uh, uh, return the market is, is going to give you. Uh, but there are indications that the market is uh, not necessarily all that efficient uh, as we think it is. Now, uh, of course, the market may be inefficient and it may still be very difficult to take advantage of that inefficiency so uh, the market may not be efficient all the time uh, there may be inefficiencies but it may be very very difficult to exploit those inefficiencies that that's also possible so if you believe that the market is efficient or if you believe that no the market is inefficient but it's just impossible to find these inefficiencies and take advantage of them uh, then uh, either way, you, you basically have to stick with uh, index funds. Uh, now, if, if you listen to uh, talks by uh, Terry Smith and uh, others, uh, they, they have gone back and calculated, for example, um, what, what price you could have paid uh, for a company like Walmart and still obtained uh, market returns right um, so so walmart has done uh, very well over the years so let's let's say walmart has become a, a hundred bagger over the years so uh, let's say the market is in in that in that time that walmart has become a hundred bagger let's say the market uh, has re returned something like a 10 10 return or something like that uh, now suppose you go back and you calculate Okay, what is the price that I could have paid for Walmart all these years ago, uh, uh, and and still uh, gotten a ten percent return? Now, of course, Walmart. Uh, if you calculate that price, uh, Walmart will not be a hundred bagger from from that price. Walmart was a hundred bagger from a much lower price. Uh, so it it turns out that you could have paid a much higher price than what was uh, what the market was charging for a company like Walmart and still uh, uh, done, done uh, very, very well, right? So uh, the, the market may have priced Walmart at uh, say uh, 40 times earnings or something like that. Uh, and you, you may, uh, e even if you paid 100 times earnings or 200 times earnings, uh, you may have still uh, gotten uh, the market return from a company like Walmart. So that is an example of market inefficiency, right? Um, or, or that is an example, uh, or th that is an indication that the market might be uh, inefficient. Because uh, if the market is efficient, then all the future cash flows of Walmart uh, would have kind of already been priced in, uh, in Walmart stock price all those years ago. But um, we, we see that, that that's obviously not the case. All that was not priced in, and that's why uh, people who bought Walmart were able to uh, trounce the market over these years. Uh, and just like Walmart, there are plenty of other companies. So 
what Terry Smith and others say is that the market has a way of systematically underpricing quality. Uh, so when you have uh, high quality com- uh, companies, uh, we are all uh, linear thinkers and we tend to, um, e- even if we know all about compounding and exponential growth and all that, we tend to underestimate the power of compounding uh, earnings over a long period of time. And so if you have a really high quality company, uh, what Terry Smith and others say is that for most of the life of the company, uh, the market is more likely to undervalue the company than overvalue it. And uh, so uh, if you just look at the multiple on a company, the P multiple or whatever, it may seem like the market is paying a very high multiple, but even that high multiple may be uh, an undervaluation of the company's prospects. And uh, so uh, the market may be uh, inefficient and it may be inefficient in a way that allows you to take advantage uh, by buying uh, high quality companies. If you believe that, again, uh, the market's expectations of this high quality company are still lower uh, or the expectations have not been fully baked in and you believe that uh, the market, uh, you believe that the market's expectations are actually uh, too conservative. Uh, so there are opportunities like this that uh, you, you can take advantage of, but it, it requires a certain amount of analysis. It's not perfect. Um, and if, if you think that you're not cut out for doing this or you uh, you find that it, it, it's going to take an enormous amount of your time to spot these kinds of opportunities, then uh, investing in a low cost index fund might, might still be the best option for you uh, sim- simply because uh, you you don't have the resources or time to devote to th- this kind of thing. So that that is um, that that's what I believe about market uh, efficiency or inefficiency. Um, the the second question is uh, how can you use the principles of probability to um, sort of uh, take take advantage. Uh, or uh, to do uh, to to improve your performance in a market uh, that that looks like this. Um, so uh, I, I will I will give you a few principles of probability that are very very useful uh, in investing. Um, so the first principle is uh, Michael Mauberson's uh, base rates. Now, uh, base rates, uh, Mauberson says. Uh, they they are very very uh, underutilized in investing. And what exactly is a base rate? Well, um, if you uh, if if you take a company and you do, you do some analysis on it, or you you re, uh, some analyst has done some analysis on it, and you read that analyst's uh, predictions. Now a lot of the time. Uh, they may uh, use the last couple of years of data or something like that to go and predict the uh, what, what the future of the company will be for, for the next several years. Um, so uh, you, you can download these kinds of analyst reports and read them and, and, and so on. But what a lot of analysts fail to do is uh, to look at their predictions. So th- their predictions may call for um, say, uh, um, you know, tw- 20% growth over the next uh, 10 years or something like that. Now, if you just go back and uh, figure out, 
okay how many companies uh, in the s&p 500 or how many companies of this particular company's market size suppose the the company that the analyst was analyzing is had uh, a market cap of 10 billion dollars so how many 10 billion dollar companies grew at that rate uh, 20% per year for for the next 10 years after they became 10 billion dollar companies if you just take that uh, that that is called a base rate so uh, you will get an idea that okay uh, so so the number of companies that have done that is very very few over the years but this analyst seems to think that this company is one of those few that can do this now uh, and every analyst may think that about the company that they <laughs> they, they are enthusiastic about so not not all of them can be right uh, because that that would um, that would violate uh, the the basic uh, uh, laws of uh, base rates. So over the years, generally, base, base rates don't really change much with time uh, or they change very, very gradually with time. This base rate, is it, it's a largely probabilistic concept. So uh, if you're going to predict that um, my particular sample is going to do something, how many other samples have done, uh, how, how many other similar samples have done that thing in the past? This is a very uh, sort of probabilistic idea. And it's very, very useful to look at those base rates in investing, uh, just to make sure that you're not, uh, if you're going to violate from the base rate, you should have very, very good reasons for doing that. Uh, so otherwise, uh, if you have no particularly good reasons for uh, assuming a rate that's different from the base rate, then that's an indication that you may be overly optimistic or the analyst who prepared this report for you may be overly optimistic about the company. So uh, understanding basic probability like this can sort of help you avoid getting suckered into uh, overly rosy projections and things like that. Um, the, the second uh, area where probability is very useful is in diversification. So we've all heard the um, the, the the phrase about uh, you know don't don't put all your eggs in one basket, uh, don't put all your money into one stock and so on. Um, but then of course uh, these sayings uh, usually stop here. They don't uh, tell you how many baskets are needed. Okay, so don't put all all my eggs in one basket. Okay, great. So should I have two baskets, five baskets, ten baskets? How many baskets should I have? How many eggs should I put into each basket? Uh, so th this is not clear uh, from just this, this particular saying. And the theory of probability uh, and uh, the theory of correlations between uh, uh, random variables, that, that uh, gives you a ton of insight into diversification. Uh, how, how many bets can you make? If, if you have, uh, say, 10 bets, each bet, uh, has a certain set of odds and these bets are not all uh, independent of each other they are correlated with each other then uh, uh, how, how much money should you allocate to each bet and uh, if you didn't have 10 bets if you had 100 bets then at, at some point the benefit of diversification uh, becomes less and less so uh, there's the very strong law of uh, diminishing returns to uh, the benefits of diversification. And if you understand the theory of probability well, uh, you can use this theory to find all kinds of insights into, okay, up to what point diversification uh, benefits you 
and after what point the benefits of diversification are just not worth it things like this uh, you will be able to understand much better if you understand probability um, and the third thing is uh, position sizing uh, so so uh, le let's say you have a, a stock uh, it, it's going to become a 10 bagger uh, but there's a 95 that, that's only a 95% chance that it becomes a 10 bagger so uh, this stock um, let's say it it, uh, it trades for $100 today um, it, it's going to uh, say, say five years from now, it's going to become a $1,000 um, uh, investment over uh, over these five years. It's going to go from 100 to 1,000. Uh, but that is with a 95% probability. The other 5%, the chances that it goes to zero. So, so the stock could either go to 1,000 or it could go to uh, zero. And the stock is at $100 right now. Now, uh, it turns out, that uh, this is a wonderful bet. Uh, why? Because, uh, well, there's a 95% chance of getting $1,000 and a 5% chance of getting $0. So that's, if you calculate the expected value, uh, it's, it's $950, right? And so uh, for $100 of uh, uh, principal that you put in, you get $850 of gains and, uh, in, in expectation. And uh, that, that is an 850% return uh, over, of course, this uh, five-year period. Uh, now, that is a wonderful bet, uh, uh, simply because uh, th there's a very, very high chance of getting a 10 back. But if you repeatedly keep making these bets, uh, if you take this $100 and uh, make it, let's, let's say it becomes $1,000 in five years, and then you invest that $1,000 again, and uh, let's say it becomes $10,000 in, in the next five years. Uh, each five-year period, you, you have a 10-bagger. But if you keep making this bet, these kinds of bets again and again, eventually what's going to happen is one fine day you will hit zero uh, because there is that, that $0 is, still has a 5% chance. That's a 1 in 20 chance. So if you do this for 20 years, uh, one year, there's a very good chance that uh, this zero dollars is going to hit and then you've lost everything basically. Uh, so for 19 years, you may do well, but then uh, the last one year uh, that, that wipes out this entire uh, 19 years worth of tremendous performance. Um, so with, with a bet like this, how exactly do you, uh, do you allocate your money? Because uh, this is a wonderful bet. It, it, it's got a very high expected value and it's got positive expectation. It's got all these wonderful characteristics. But if you keep making this bet again and again, if you keep rolling over your money into this bet, eventually you're guaranteed to lose all your money, right? Uh, so how do you think about this bet? How do you decide uh, how much of your money to allocate to this bet at every single turn and things like that? Uh, that is a beautiful theory for this, uh, and it is based on uh, basic principles of probability. And this particular theory is called the, the Kelly criterion, and it, it gives you all kinds of insights into how you should size your positions based on what odds you have and uh, how, how to best take advantage of your odds. Um, so it turns out that for this particular problem, Kelly the Kelly criterion says that you have to uh, you have to allocate about 94% of your portfolio to this bet at, at every turn. And if you, uh, so you should not put 100% of your money into this bet. If you put 100% of your money into this bet, eventually you lose it all. 
but if you put 94% of your money into this this type of bet then uh, you you will not lose it all and you will get a 634% return uh, every time you make this bet um, so th- this wonderful theory how how do you get all these numbers how do you get 94% how do you get 634% well you, you understand the basics if you understand the basics of probability you'll be able to derive all these things for yourself uh, so so these are all the broad areas of investing where understanding uh, fundamental concepts of probability uh, are very very useful and uh, i i have found them to be incredibly useful uh, for for me over the years and uh, you you may you may find them useful as well thanks tilke wonderful explanation i think you have shared lot of insights to observe um thanks for patiently answering the question absolutely absolutely uh, so the next uh, caller is uh, raj hi tilke um uh, hello thanks for that uh, uh, brilliant explanation uh, about probability and using in practical it was, it was really um you know very um you know it, it kind of opened my my eyes also uh, so so i have a question which is more inclined towards mispricing so so i'm i'm trying to the, the mechanics of mispricing right so uh i want to understand i mean I, i'm going to explain you the way i see it and and i want you to help me if if i'm on the right track so sure. the way i look at mispricing is you know i i take a company that i'm interested i take their you know last 10 years uh, uh cash flow of the owners right and average it out and then i uh, then look at the next uh, 10 years uh, growth you know let's say they got 5% or uh, 10% or 15% whatever i come up with the final number and then i use a discount rate uh, which is you know depending on what I mean, usually i go for a 15% discount rate and then whatever price i get right that is my intrinsic value and then on top of it i add a margin of safety let's say i do 30% margin of safety or 50% margin of safety doesn't matter and then i arrive at my final price okay, okay. So that is the price at which i would like to buy any um, um any uh, you know uh, uh, stock right let's say stock now now if that is the price that i have arrived at based on my, uh, whatever framework i have and the the mispricing now uh, as long as you know let's say there is a there is some kind of a market jolt or or you know there is some uh, inefficiency in the market the way we describe and it kind of falls into the range of uh, the 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 value that i mean after my margin of safety um i got i got uh, uh, to buy that uh, you know uh, uh, stock so is this the way mispricing is is implemented in a real world uh, um, so 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 i would like to know if, if i'm on the right track or do you think there are any more modifications i have to do uh yeah th- this is uh, absolutely um, one one way to implement um, th- this idea of mispricing so essentially what you're saying is that uh, you you want a 15% return on your investment that's why you're using a 15% discount rate on the future cash flows uh, that that you will get from an asset or something like that so if you use a 15% discount rate on your estimate of uh, future cash flows uh, you you will get a particular price and if you buy that asset at that price 
um, you you will get a 15% return if those cash flows materialize. And what you're doing is uh, you're, you're buying it at uh, an even lower price than uh, uh, what the cash flows would, uh, what the intrinsic value calculation would have you believe. That is your margin of safety. And essentially, uh, the margin of safety does, uh, uh, it, it, it tells you that uh, even, even if you make a mistake in estimating your cash flows, even if your cash flows are, uh, the actual cash flows that you get turn out to be uh, lower than uh, your estimated cash flows, uh, you may still make that 15% return uh, simply because you bought your uh, stock at a, at a discount to uh, intrinsic value. So uh, this is exactly how um, mispricing works in practice. Uh, now the question is, okay, so what exactly does the uh, does the market believe about this particular stock? Because um, the market, if you if you look at the equity risk premium or whatever, uh, Aswadhamadhan does does a lot of work uh, tabulating this equity risk premium. It's usually something of the order of five to six percent. And um, if you if you take the risk-free interest rate, that might be another two percent. So um, it if if you take the average stock in the market or something like that, uh, that that means um, the average stock is going to get you about seven to eight percent return uh, going forward. So if these estimates of equity risk premium and uh, risk-free interest rate, if they are all correct then it means uh, the market is priced at a level that will give you an 8% return uh, going forward. So in an 8% market, uh, how is it that you are able to achieve a 15% return from this particular stock? So has has the market missed something about this particular uh, company? Um, So in what way does your expectations of this company's future differ from the market's expectation of the company's future. Because uh, if this company is as wonderful as you say, then the market, uh, uh, if the market realizes that, it should also price uh, this company to deliver 8% return, right? Not 15% return. But it has priced it in such a way that you are able to buy it uh, uh, with with an expectation of earning 15% and probably more than 15% because of your margin of safety. Uh, So, it's always a good idea to sort of understand what the market's expectations are and what your um, uh, expectations are, why they are different, and uh, what makes you believe that your expectations are the correct expectations and the market is being overly pessimistic. It's, it's always a good idea to go through that uh, exercise. Um, and the second thing is, um, if the market, if something happens and uh, uh, this particular stock declines in value, and that's why you're able to buy it uh, because it, it crosses your uh, threshold for uh, buying the stock, uh, then you have to ask yourself, okay, why this sudden decline in the price of the security? Now, this sudden decline may be part of a, a broader decline. So a lot of stocks in the market may have declined at the same time, and this thing may be part of that. Or it might be just this company, uh, the market has suddenly soured on this company's prospects or something like that, and uh, the stock prices decline. Uh, now, uh, of course, you have estimated the future cash flows of this company and you have an idea about the intrinsic value, but if there is a sharp drop in the price, you may want to uh, sort of ask yourself, okay, is this sharp drop justified? 
do you need to go back and look at your cash flows again? And uh, is there anything, uh, any new information that has come to light in the last uh, quarterly earnings or in the last 8K put out by the company or something like that? Is there any new information that might cause you to revise those expectations of cash flows? Uh, you probably have to ask that uh, before just going in and buying the company at uh, at this new lower price. So, so for example, if if you if you have an intrinsic value estimate of Netflix or something like that, and in the last uh, couple of weeks uh, the market has completely clobbered Netflix, uh, but it wasn't just because uh, the market suddenly decided that it doesn't like Netflix. Uh, there, there is a there was an earnings report that came out. And maybe there was something in that earnings report that uh, that might affect your estimate of future cash flows. So you you have to also do that work before just going in and buying Netflix. Yeah, basically what you're saying is in addition to that, you also have to calculate any catastrophic risks uh, involved because of this uh, uh, precipitous drop in any of the equity. I mean, Netflix being the example. And then recalculate, reevaluate your future cash flow. And if you're still convinced that what you had done before is what what it is going to be, then this is a golden opportunity, right? So, so, so that's what I understand. Uh, that is correct. Or you you may revise your ex- estimates lower because of this report. You may mm-hmm. decide that your earlier projections are too rosy, but you may lower them by five percent, uh, and the market may have lowered them by thirty percent, and so. Uh, you may still conclude that this meets your uh, the the new price still meets your cutoff for uh, buying it. Right, right, right. So, 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 j- just to end the, I mean, uh, on this topic now, uh, what, what, what I, what I'm learning today is that any time, given any day, uh, there will always be an opportunity for mispricing because of the inefficiency in the market because. Uh, and and it is only that whether I'm able to find it or I'm 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 lucky to find it or I'm unlucky to miss it that is up to me. But inefficiencies and mispricing will always be there at every part time uh, part of the uh, in, in in the market, right? Whether it's up or down. Uh, so I believe uh, that is clo- much closer to the truth. But if you go and talk to somebody who believes in the in the strong form of the efficient markets hypothesis, they they will tell you that no, this is absolutely wrong. Uh, the market is always 100% efficient all the time, and uh, so 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 it, it, I mean there there are different theories about market efficiency and inefficiency. But I believe that any given at any given time, there are probably tons of inefficiencies in the market. Now they may not be easy to find or easy to exploit and and so on. But uh, I I believe they are there. And if someone is willing to do uh, diligent work, then from from time to time, uh, they may be able to spot uh, such opportunities. So so that's that's what I believe. But there are different people who believe different things. Yeah, no, thanks. I, I got it. Thanks a lot. Sure, sure. Okay, uh, do, do we have uh, any more questions um, or uh, is this it? Uh, going once, going twice. So, uh, 
uh, oh, let, let me ask. I mean, because uh, so I don't know if you have covered this. So, uh, so have you ever covered how to calculate uh, the return on a portfolio? See, like when you say S and P returned twenty eight percent for this year, and if I have to compare the S and P uh, return on S and P, uh, you know, uh, and my own portfolio return, right? What is the best way? What is the? I mean, is there any framework that uh, helps me to kind of calculate my portfolio return, or, or have you written any uh, Twitter thread on that? I, I'm, because I'm I'm finding it very difficult to uh, do the way you know the the money managers or, or, or funds do in, in in terms of calculating the overall return. Right, right. Uh, so uh, when when somebody says the S and P 500 has returned uh, say 28 percent this year. Uh, what what they usually mean is that if someone had uh, on on January first, if they had put in one dollar into the S and P five hundred, uh, say say uh, well uh, let let's say uh, into each each stock in the S and P five hundred at the uh, at the correct weightage that it was in and and so on, if someone had put in one dollar into the S and P five hundred, and any time they received a dividend from any of these stocks. Uh, they they reinvested it back into the S and P 500 at uh, at the at, at the correct uh, proportion. Then at the end of the year, if you total up uh, all their investments, uh, it it would be worth one dollar and twenty eight cents. So that that's what it means. Now, of course, your situation may be very different uh, from uh, this hypothetical person who has put in one dollar at the beginning of the year and reinvested all dividends. Uh, for example, one common way that our situation is different from the S&P 500 is uh, we add capital constantly during the year. So during the year, we may every month we may we may save a certain amount of money, and we may add that money to our portfolio. Right uh, now, we shouldn't calculate. Uh, we shouldn't take this 28% and compare that 28% to our portfolio's return because. Uh, uh, what what we should do is uh, let, let's say we had uh, uh, say a, a, a 100k portfolio at the beginning of the year and during the year we added uh, 50k at, at various times what we have to do is in order to compare our portfolio to the s&p 500 we have to look at okay uh, let's say on on february 28th we added uh, $10,000 to the portfolio now what would have happened if we started with the 100k in the S&P 500, but then on February 28th, we bought another 10K worth of the S&P 500. So that is uh, tailoring the uh, S&P 500 return metric to our own uh, portfolio, our own um, uh, deposits and withdrawals uh, from the portfolio. So we have to calculate uh, this uh, sort of adjusted return, which is uh, the uh, the return of the S&P 500, but with our withdrawals and uh, deposits, not with um, um, just a $1 beginning deposit, right? Uh, so this is the return that we have to compare to our portfolio's return. And of course, you also have to take the dividends paid by the uh, S&P 500 into account. And usually it's a good idea to assume that these dividends are reinvested back into the index. Uh, so, so this is how you do a, a comparison between uh, yourself and the S&P 500. 
Good. Thank. Okay. Sure. So do we do we have uh, um, any more questions? Okay, so we are almost at uh, an hour and 30 minutes now. So um, thank you all very much for coming. I had a lot of fun, uh, both uh, reading the paper, uh, uh, sorry, reading the book chapter and finding out uh, more about how horse racing works and things like that. And uh, doing this uh, podcast episode, uh, it, it was a lot of fun for me. And I hope that uh, uh, you, you guys also had fun, learned something useful and so on. Uh, so see you all next week and uh, take care until then. Bye-bye.